Today's episode of Rebuilders is our final one for 2023, and we are taking the opportunity to look ahead to what's in store for us for 2024. We are going to look at the mega trends affecting, uh, I think, what is going to sh- well, really what's going to shape the world in 2024. Uh, and uh, we're also, I'm going to pronounce the end of an era. I think 2023 is the end of an era that went from 2015 to 2023. And we're entering a new one. If you want to know what that is, you'll have to listen to the episode. But also we end, I think, with a real encouragement of what God has for us in 2024, for you individually, for us as the church. Uh, I think it's exciting times. Yeah, let's get into it. Welcome to Rebuilders. My name's Lydia and I'm here with Mark and Daniel. How are you both today? Good. Season's greetings. Mm, Glad tidings. It's good to be here. Um, I would like the top of the show. Wow. Oh, today. Yeah, okay, by all means. Something I've wanted to do for the last few years and just have never actually got around to organising it <laughs> is get you guys a little gift for Christmas. Oh, oh Daniel. So, I've got you guys some gifts. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So Daniel is currently. <laughs> what is going on? Oh, my on? goodness. He's, pre- he's presenting oh, us Daniel. some gifts. Oh, Christmas. Amazing. What a legend. Wow. So for those listening at home, there, there is the YouTube option where you can see what's happening. We yeah. are currently opening some gifts from yeah. Daniel. Yeah. I'd just like to point out that I got a bigger box than Daniel. Yeah. Well, so, first I mean, of all, Mark, Liddy's so. is bigger. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Liddy, this is, you're getting married <laughs> next year. Oh, wow. And you wow. need an activity and a show. And yeah. Mark, this is topical. Okay. So while, while Liddy's opening, I've got the a compact Australian bird guide. <laughs> Uh, which is a, a guide to Australian birds, obviously a reference to the fact that yep. my letterbox has been filled by- And I heard it's back. It's, I know, yeah, it's, it's back it's for our listeners. Hovering. It's hovering. It's hanging around. I've got a photo, but maybe we can put the photo in the- um, In subscriber chats. In the subscriber yeah, yeah. chats. Um, we can while, do that. While you share what you've got, Lydia, I'm going to look up what bird- is making a home in mine. Well, I've um, been gifted a 500-piece puzzle and the artwork of the puzzle is uh, The Office. Yes, excellent TV show, which Mark and I both love. And, and I'm convinced that not you will, entirely you will convinced come. on. Uh, I mean, my future husband is a fan, um, <laughs> so he'll enjoy putting this together. Yeah. On his as, own as, while right, I go and sit in another you, room on my own. Fun marriage activity. <laughs> <laughs> I actually love puzzles, so I, I would do it. I know. I, that's why I got it. And I'll cry the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Daniel. Thank that's you. really this is, fun. This is very nice. Can I, can I just say I found the bird. Oh, yeah. What have you oh, got? Yeah. And uh, it's, it's the common minor bird. Ah. Um, Acidotherius tristis, <laughs> and it says this of the bird: it's a bold, strutting, raucous urban dweller. <laughs> Isn't that the people we minister to? Oh, um, introduced is- in 1860, progressively occupying disturbed rural environments. Oh my goodness! Oh, broad rep. Their voice is a broad repertoire of grating and melodious calls, which which <laughs> go. Chick ooh cheer <laughs> and chee 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 is their attempt to. Does it say capture. anything about where they like to make their habitats? Well, I, pres- I presume that because it's raucous, bold, and strutting, and it's an urban dweller, <laughs> that it is raucously <laughs> strutting and boldly moving into my letterbox. <laughs> oh, oh my fantastic. goodness, that's amazing. Well, Thank, Merry you, Christmas to you both. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. I'll pop yep. that there. Um, well, what a wonderful start to yeah. the episode. Amazing. Thank you, Dee. Pleasure. Merry um, Christmas. We are going to get into what will be potentially an epic episode. Bonanza. 
end of year um, bonanza. If you listened to our last episode, you will know um, Mark kind of teased the idea. Or did we? Did you no, tease it, was in it in subscriber chats? Subscriber chats. Okay. Mm. Well, those of you who subscribe will know. Um, you planned to do a bit of a 2024 preview. What to yeah. what to expect? Yeah. Um, with what's ahead for the world. So we're going to get underway with mm. that right now. So. You're kind of seeing this as a bit of a shift and you've, you've teased this idea yeah. um, uh, as we've been talking over the last few months. So a shift from the age of anxiety to the, the age, age of, of anger. anger. Yeah, so I am setting out that uh, effectively some sort of 2015 to 2023, we're in a sort of phase which I'm going to call the age of anxiety. Obviously, I wrote a book about you know non-anxious presence and anxiety has been everywhere and, you know, I think this begins in 2015, there was a real sense that, hang on, things are changing and it's not heading in the direction that we thought. Mm. Obviously, Donald Trump's election, Brexit, numerous elections around the world, this sort of intensification of the cultural war. Uh, you know, you see in this period the Ukraine war, you know, really sort yep. of kicking off. Um, and just a general sense like, hang on, we're worried, we're anxious. This does not seem to be turning out in the way that we thought. Mm. Um, but I think what we've realized now is that as we move into 2024, this is not a blip. A lot of the first part of this, you know, this is a blip, normal service will be resumed. Um, you know, that hasn't happened. Uh, so I think that we're going to sort of head into a new phase, mm -hmm. a phase of anger. In a sense, uh, anxiety is internal. It's a felt reality. Whereas I think what we're going to see is we're going to see it sort of spill out into the social more. Mm. Um, and probably that's not <laughs> happy news for lots of people thinking, oh my goodness, it's been anxious enough heading into the age of anger. Uh, but I'll sort of explain why. But um, you know, I think at the end of that, there is a little bit of a silver lining, which we'll get to at the end. But what we want to do then is we'll sort of go through some cultural, um, political, uh, sort of why the world's going type stuff. Mm -hmm. And then we'll have a little break and then we'll sort of talk from a more spiritual perspective. But um, I've come up with some mega trends. Yeah. Mega I've, trends. I've got the whole list of mega trends here. That are going to affect 2024 and shape the world in which we live, minister, um, yeah, work, yep. serve. Great. Well, let's, let's start with one mega trend, the politics of protest. The politics of protest. So I think one of the sort of things that characterized the age of anxiety was this sense that before then there was very much uh, a notion that the world was sort of smoothly sliding to a progressive utopia. Mm -hmm. uh, this is almost the Obama era, yes, we can, uh, that it was inevitable, it's going to happen, and um, it was sort of going to be an overarchingly pleasant experience. Uh, and then the age of anxiety begins when people realize that that story is not being fulfilled. Mm. Um, and so since then, there's been this battle like, our government's going to go to the left or the right? And all of a sudden, you know, people in places like America would be tracking with, say, the Polish election, you know, which way is it going to go? What's this going to tell us about the way the weather vane is indicating the future political reality? Um, is it going to go left? Is it going to go right? And so a lot of stuff about the rise of the authoritarian right. But I think what we're seeing across the world is not so much a swing to the right or a swing to the left as much as the politics of protest. And, and what I mean by that is it's remarkable, and we've mentioned this before, it's remarkable that across the world, whether it's from you know Peru to Japan to Scandinavia, there is just this incredible dissatisfaction with incumbent governments in power. Doesn't matter if they're left, doesn't matter if they're right. 
Um, I just read this morning that I think uh, PM Kishida in Japan is like at 19% positive approval rating, which is the lowest since World War II. Wow. Um, you know, and that's not a, a story that's that's unique. You're seeing this everywhere. In Australia, we had a, you know, a government which became unpopular, which was a conservative government under Scott Morrison. Uh, they lost the election in quite a large majority to our Labor government, which is our, you know, sort of left centre-left government. And but already Labor has only been in power what a year or something, mm. and their approval rating is really low. Yeah. So you're seeing this dynamic across the world where there is just an increased frustration with the status quo mm. is really what this is. Um, and uh, even those who attempt to change the status quo are finding it more difficult. So you know, again, too, we had we had a protest vote in. Donald Trump coming into power, mm. uh, but then Biden was sort of this pushback against that. But Biden's unpopularity is incredible. So, mm. just sort of looking at some, um, uh, you know, sort of I guess you know, sort of more granular details. Um, you know, in Argentina we had the election of Javier Milei, who was completely outside of the political system in Argentina. Argentina mm -hmm. has been run by a sort of form of populism that sort of became institutionalized because parent you know called Peronism. Uh, and all of a sudden this very maverick outsider libertarian um, economist who a lot of people characterize as far right is is he really far right? He's more just a radical free market economist. And that's happened in Argentina because people are deeply frustrated with the state of the economy in Argentina and it's mm. been terrible for years. So, again, you know, it's not whether is the world turning libertarian, is it turning socialist? It's more just people are absolutely frustrated. And I think what's happened is there's been a sort of break in the social contract. Now, mm. one sort of example that people uh, gave is, oh, hang on, maybe there's a pushback against the authoritarian right is the election of Donald Tusk, not Donald Trump, Donald Tusk. Who you know is a former EU politician who won power recently as the Law and Justice Party in Poland, which was a seen as a populist authoritarian right party, lost the election, and Donald Tusk came to power in Poland. But what a lot of people missed in that, and some of the analysis is no, this is not returned back to the centre. Is Donald Tusk stole a lot of the sort of anti-immigration policies that the Law and Justice Party had. So there's this sense that he won through sort of taking a populist approach. Yeah. So again, he exploited dissatisfaction with the incumbent party. Uh, and that's something we see everywhere. But I think probably, uh, you know, this is going to be a dynamic in 2024, because there's some uh, is an incredible amount of elections coming up. We have the Indian election, which is a billion people. Uh, mm. We have the elections in Great Britain. Uh, we have elections in Taiwan, which is going to be extremely strategically important for the world because if a party comes to power that is uh, perhaps pro, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, reconnecting to China, which is a stated policy objective, uh, the Chinese Communist Party to reunify uh, Taiwan with the Chinese mainland, uh, you know, that could mean that there's not need to take the island militarily. Um, but if there's a sort of independence party wins, you know, will that then see that will be sort of like a, a confirmation that we're going to see a conflict in the Taiwan Strait, mm. um, which will have huge, you know, huge consequences for the world. Uh, so a lot of really important elections coming. But one probably is foremost in people's minds, which is the US election, um, which in many ways was really the, the global bellwether for 
a lot of the sort of authoritarian shifts we saw in the world. And amazingly, amazingly, we're in a position where if you read the media in America, uh, there is almost a They've almost conceded that Biden's going to lose if you read between the lines. Yeah, wow. Uh, Biden's popularity in swing states is 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 really low. Uh, Donald Trump, despite everything um, that his his opponents would say should undo him, that many cases against him, uh, the indictments, the uh, uh, impeachments, the uh, what happened on January the 6th. Uh, none of this seems to have harmed him. In fact, he's grown in popularity and has cut into various minority votes, you know, mm. growing African-American vote, moving towards Donald Trump, uh, Hispanic vote, uh, you know. And so the reality is uh, at this point, as things stand, um, Donald Trump will probably be the pre next president of the United States and what that will mean. Now, a lot can happen. It's a year away. So mm. a lot can happen between now and then. But that just shows you, I think, the mood in the world of complete dissatisfaction with the status quo that, yeah. uh, you know, people look in that direction and many things could happen. It may not end up being Biden versus Trump, but overwhelmingly in the world, there is the politics of protest have become normative. And I think that says something. What, what's beneath that? I think what it says is that the social contract that ruling governments across the world have promised people is no is broken yeah you know people do not see current governments and the way that they've managed and their political visions whether on the left or the right as actually connecting with the real issues that they see are as important and so there's a tremendous delegitimization of politics uh and i think that this is one evidence of the age of anger the age of anxiety of like this feels a bit off the age of anger is hang on something is really broken here yeah, and, and we've we got need to do to something about it exactly we've yeah. got to shift the status quo we are no longer invested in the status quo um and i think particularly with young people coming through too as well you know like uh the ideas of it's more difficult to own a home it's more difficult to enter into the economy and and i you know i noticed that younger people overwhelmingly have a sense the world's not necessarily going to be a better place. So there's a profound rupturing of the social contract and the role that politics plays in the world, which I think is evidence of the phase we're heading into of the age of anger. Okay. Well, I think this leads well into the next one, the drums of war. Yes. Which feels like... I <laughs> know, oh, these are not these are not like happy. It's so <laughs> ominous. I know, I know, I know. Uh, feel free to... Just have a few bits of extra Christmas chocolate yeah. <laughs> or, or, or or nice sweets as as you listen to this. Um, you know, one of the sort of things of the age of anxiety was hearing the drums of war. Um, you know, I think particularly one of the last phases. If you look at if you look at the age of anxiety as I've designated here from 2015 to 2023. You know, obviously one thing is you know you began to see tensions tensions in. Uh, the uh, Taiwan Strait. Uh, obviously, you know, Russia had gone into Georgia. Uh, Russia then, you know, did its incursion into eastern Ukraine. Um, but then really the sense like, hang on, something's coming apart here was, um, you know, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, uh, you know, very much if you look at the 90s, there was a sense in the 90s and uh, into the, you know, up until probably September 11th that, you know, war was a thing of the past. You know, there was this sense with the intervention in, in the Balkans um, that actually the West through having these grand coalitions um, could um, overcome, uh, you know, difficulties and do this sort of very 
surgical strikes, mm-hmm. um, you know, and even the coalition that George H. Bush pulled together in the first Gulf War sort of thought, you know, in the future it's going to be, you know, these lone tyrants who try and do something and the world will come against them. You know, that story really just was cra- crushed by the invasion of Ukraine. Um, and, you know, if you look at the war in Ukraine, you know, it, it had for a period a, a real bolstering, rallying sense, particularly in Europe, you know, visiting Europe, you know, seeing Ukraine flags everywhere and European countries. In many ways, what Ukraine became was a proxy war between the West and this alliance of, mm-hmm. you know, Russia and, and Iran and sort of China in the background. Um, but, you know, what we've seen is um, that, that war has continued on. It obviously had effect. We talked about things like the Nord Stream bombing here, the effect that they had on gas yep. uh, supplies to, to Europe. But I think what a lot of people don't might realize is that what the experts are starting to say is that it's looking possible now that Russia wins the war in 2024. Mm. The sheer scale of numbers. This is, you know, I think part of our sort of rethinking of war was, oh, you know, the future of war is this, you know, they talked about shock and awe. I think it was Donald Rumsfeld, uh, you know, uh, talked about in, in, in Iraq that this super highly technologically advanced armies like the US Army could just come and overrun someone. And the future of war was a smart bomb. It was someone pressing a drone strike, you know, in a yeah. in a sort of portable somewhere in in you know Texas and someone gets killed with a missile in in you know Yemen. Uh, but what we're seeing in 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 Ukraine is really in classic industrial war on a large scale. Mm. Um, you're seeing trenches, you're seeing just Hundreds of thousands of like the, the troop deaths. It's it's funny. It's not mentioned, but um, I mean, it'd be interesting, Daniel, if you could just check on our Google there. Just I mean, the latest. Uh, uh, I mean, even just the wiki article of you know what the latest death toll. I mean, uh, tens. Yeah, and, yeah. Ten. So Ukraine somewhere between around ten to thirteen thousand killed, fifteen thousand missing. Russians, hundred twenty thousand killed, um, hundred seventy to hundred eighty thousand wounded so really when you get into this sort of like mass scale of war it really comes down to numbers Mm -hmm. and um russia just has a heck of a lot more people than ukraine Mm -hmm. i don't think russia has even put its conscripts in yet you know russia has also a conscript army which is not committed and so it's become a war of attrition secondly uh russia is able to is currently put itself on a war footing with its economy so at the start of the war people were talking about the fact that sanctions are going to cripple russia uh, but Russia, in many ways, has sort of found its way around many of these sanctions, and the economic effect is actually being felt in mm. in Europe as well. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the inflationary problems we're talking about in the world, a lot of the energy problems that Europe is facing, and Europe has dodged some of these so far because it had a relatively warm uh, winter. Uh, uh, you know, it's gone in both directions, but. Just at this point, it comes down to bullets and artillery shells, and yeah. Russia is producing more. North Korea is producing a significant amount of uh, shells and, and bullets for, for Russia. Interestingly, Ukraine's prime supplier of, of bullets and, and you know, artillery shells is now South Korea. So weirdly, you've got yeah, this well. situation <laughs> where you know, Ukraine more got this weird South Korea, North Korea proxy thing happening as well. Yeah. Um, and you know, Ukraine is being exhausted. Um, so I think, you know, when Russia took over at first, they looked like they'd take, you know, Ukraine, we all thought that, and then we thought, oh, no, they'd, they'd turn back. So what what would it look like if either this sort of gets becomes just a, a continuing slow attrition? What does it look like if Ukraine falls? Not many people have thought of that. And, and what you've seen is the amount of sort of treasure, not so much 
you know, soldiers, but treasure that the West is having to spend. Now, what mm. you're seeing is part of the resolve of the West to fund the war in Ukraine is starting to be tested now. It's increasingly becoming a political talking point. And again, in the US election, in many of these elections around the world of countries who are supporting Ukraine, uh, there is increasing frustration that's going to come up in the populace of supporting Ukraine while there's a cost of living crisis and the economic uh, cost. What does it look like if, if Russia takes the whole of Ukraine and all of a sudden you've got Russia, you know, right on the border. In a sense, you know, Ukraine was a, a buffer zone between Russia and NATO. Uh, it's going to be really interesting how that plays out. And obviously this is also happening at a time where we have the Israel-Gaza war continuing. Mm. Um, you know, we, we did an episode on Israel-Gaza. Israel had not even gone into uh, Gaza at that point. Uh, but this is continuing. And again, to many, many casualties, um, you know, significant civilian impact this mm. is having. But also perhaps what is less being reported on, and it's interesting, part of the reason it's less being reported on is because I don't think the US is interested in it being reported on and sort of facts are coming out after the event is that, you know, a number of Iranian proxies are also attacking US positions in Iraq and Syria. Bases are being attacked and the Iranian proxies have got some quite sophisticated weapons. Mm. Um, you know, so there is still the significant potential that the war in Israel and Gaza. So it's, you know, you think it's between Israel and Gaza, but there's literally engagements between US forces and Iranian proxies in, mm. in other places. Um, so that has the potential and that's another place the US is having to send military equipment um, yes. you know, that's going on. Uh, one other after effect of that is happening or not a sort of secondary effect is that the Houthi rebels who are in Yemen, again, another Iranian-backed militia, uh, are currently starting to sort of fire missiles at shipping in, in the Red Sea. Uh, mm. And uh, the Red Sea is one of the world's sort of main shipping crossing points for for oil and and energy and container ships. And uh, what happened, you know, it goes through the Suez Canal, you know, which obviously was something which made global trade easier because it shortened the distance. People before had to go around the Cape of Good Hope at the bottom of Africa. Uh, but what happened is about three days ago, two days ago, Maersk, the gigantic Danish container shipping company, said they're not going to go through there. It's simply too dangerous. And there was a domino effect. And now all these companies, energy companies, container ships are like, we're not going to go through there. So they've either paused their ships or they're redirecting fleets to go around Africa, which is going to add weeks and weeks onto mm. the journey and again to the real potential. So Christmas won't be affected. All the stuff's been on the shelves for some time. Mm. But you're going to see, again, probably more supply chain issue disruption like we saw uh, with COVID, you're going to see uh, probably have an inflationary effect because shipping costs will go up to transport yes. stuff. It's just yeah. more expensive to go that, that further. So, you know, if that wasn't enough, also uh, then on the dial uh, comes into the potential of a, a conflict in, in South America. Mm. Um, so uh, Venezuela, which, you know, elected a sort of, uh, you know, has a far left sort of government that is connected again to this axis of uh, Russia and Iran and China. Um, there's a significant presence of Hezbollah, um, which is the Iranian proxy in Beirut, in, mm -hmm. in, in Lebanon. It actually has a presence in uh, Venezuela. Wagner, the Russian mercenary group who did the coup, which I think we oh, talked yes. about, yeah, yeah. Uh, they have a presence in Venezuela. Um, and uh, this is part of this axis against the West. And uh, I think it was about a week or two ago, um, there's a particular region in one of Venezuela's neighbours of Guyana, um, which is formerly British Guyana, a uh, very small country, less than a million people, I think 700,000 people, 
Um, in 2015, the Guyanese uh, discovered a significant oil field. Um, and so basically did some deals with, I think it was ExxonMobil to, you know, this, this is going to become a new source of energy for America. And um, uh, basically what happened two weeks ago is that part of the region of Guyana, Venezuela claims, and it's been a disputed territory for some time, but Venezuela very quickly held a referendum where they actually said, this is our land and are now talking about taking that land. Right. Uh, so you've got a buildup of troops um, on the border of Venezuela and Guyana. Um, uh, the Guyanese army, I think it's only like, you know, it's like a few thousand guys are pretty un underarmed. Uh, but what this would do is there's already US troops that have sort of flown in, there's flyovers happening. Uh, it's a significant strategic asset for the US. Uh, Guyana and particularly these oil fields is that you could see another place where another proxy war breaks out. Brazil is also concerned. They've put troops on the border. Uh, so what you're starting to see is a stretching of America as a global power uh, who has a very strong military. But when you're starting to involved in different theaters, your artillery, mm -hmm. your military equipment is needed. Uh, you know, you get uh, really stretched. And you know, just a couple other things on the drum board. I, I mentioned the Taiwan elections, and um, we've spoken about Taiwan before. But again, too, you know, what there is a nightmare scenario here for the U.S. If you know, you see action in Ukraine, Middle East. Uh, uh, South America and and Taiwan. You know, mm. How does the U.S. How does the you know the sort of Western forces align with the U.S. react in a situation like this? But there's more. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're seeing uh, an intensification also with another actor who's part of that sort of axis, North Korea, who is, you know, share is, uh, shared is 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 supplying uh, the Russians uh, with military equipment. Um, that, you know, they're increasingly strengthening and, and building up troops around the sort of border regions um, with South Korea and, you know, as continuing their missile development. And, you know, just I think today and the last 24 hours has sort of tested some more missiles, one which has the capability, intercontinental ballistic missile, which has the capability of reaching the US. Mm. Um, so you're seeing these flashpoints. Is it coordinated? We don't know. Uh, but what you are seeing is that America's ability to project power and when America's ability to project power militarily is also a way of keeping the sea lanes of the world open, the sort of lifestyle that we're enabled to have has very yeah. much been facilitated that the shirt you ordered from H&M can get on a container ship to you across the world's sea, sea lanes, is that as America is militarily stretched in the world, uh, its ability to project power is stretched. And that means the vision of the world as we've understood it is increasingly being stretched. One of the sub point, um, we're also seeing this, you know, we just had COP26 or what is it, COP28 or whatever it was, which is the, you know, global sort of environmental summit, you know, and you go back years, there was a, a very much a sort of, you know, unilateral, you know, idea of working on the environment together, but we're starting to see it more dragged into geopolitical competition. Yeah. So, you know, so all of this will have a, a significant on our ability to deal with environmental challenges in the world. Mm. Um, because what you're seeing is, as I mentioned about Venezuela, a lot of this stuff is actually about resources and energy, these flashpoints in the world. Well, speaking of resources, uh, your next point is the magical economy, <laughs> which just takes me to like Jack and the Beanstalk and the Magic Beans. Yes. But I'm going to guess that's not what you're talking about. Yeah. So, you know, one, one of the other big trends, uh, mega trends in 2024 is we're in a really, really strange moment with our economy. 
And uh, you have these, you know, one of the conundrums that people are asking the question is, how is Joe Biden so unpopular currently when the economic indicators in the US look good? The US economy is growing. There's people making money on the stock market. Uh, but effectively what we have is we have an economic model in the world. And I think this is one of the reasons why we're seeing the protest, politics of protest, mm-hmm. is that certain sectors of the economy are doing well. If you're in energy, you're doing well. If you're in military equipment, you're doing well. Mm-hmm. If you're part of a big sort of, you know, uh, you know, private equity company, you know, Blackstone, BlackRock, Vanguard, these people are doing really well at the moment. Yes. Uh, but the average person who is on the street isn't doing as well. And the cost of living crisis, inflation affects people who work in service industries. You know, uh, here in, in Melbourne, we have, you know, a significant development as we've grown on the edges of our city of people who bought houses at, at probably borrowed a lot of money in the era where there was low interest rates who all of a sudden are now facing the reality that their interest rates have gone up. Their mm-hmm. credit card debt has gone up. And so we've been in this really weird novel situation for the last little while where we had low interest rates. We had then in 2020 with the coronavirus pandemic, one of the biggest economic shocks since the Great Depression. One of the ways that governments dealt with that is through stimulus, printing money. People got checks. But you were giving money to people who really couldn't spend a lot. Like, what are you going to spend it on? Candy Crush? You know, like (laughs) sitting on your couch. Um, So that meant household savings went up. Uh, And what's been going on is that, in a sense, we've had an economic shock, Mm -hmm. but- it's been buffered by the fact that we've had these savings that people have been slowly, slowly working through. Yeah. Now, cutting into that is raising interest rates, inflation. Uh, so, in a sense, things like restaurants and services and, and cruises is, is all continuing. We've also got a lot of baby boomers who uh, got a lot of accrued money and are spending mm. that. But a lot of the intergenerational stuff of you know, boomers versus millennials in the housing market is really just cover for – not talking about the fact that there's some significant structural issues with our economy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're also in this weird thing is because you've got so many baby boomers retiring, it means that normally in a, in a recession, you'd mark a recession by the fact that there's low economic growth plus high unemployment. We don't have high unemployment because there's people resigning and retiring. Yes. Uh, so employment's still high, but actually the economy is stagnating. So this is also all happening at a time where um, there's the average person has much higher expectations of the economy than they did in 1991. Yeah. So people feel they're doing worse if they can't have this sort of upper middle class lifestyle. Yes. So one, one way I heard it is that what the sort of previous era did, and maybe this was the age of anxiety, was because of low interest rates, because of little inflation, because there was lots of money everywhere. It meant that everyone in the developed world could live two or three lifestyles above what their wages actually and you know enabled mm. them to do. Because mm-hmm. we're doing it on credit, we can borrow money. Um, that is that is being now reset. And so you're gonna see everyone come down two or three lifestyles. Now, some of them, they're not it is still better than what people had in 1983. But we're, we're not used to that. No. And, and you know, but also what that also means is that people who are maybe just a bit above the poverty line will find themselves below the poverty line. Yes. So what you're seeing is you're seeing more people move into economic precariousness. You're seeing more people feel a sense of being ripped off. And I think that there's also a sense out there that there's a lot of bubbles. 
in, in Australia, there's definitely a housing bubble. Like it's mm. it's ridiculous. I think there's a restaurant bubble as well. I, I saw one article about the restaurant bubble that if credit is easy to get, if there's lots of money, if you know people people can afford stuff, there's going to be a lot more restaurants to spend that money. Uh, but there's a point when as the money shrinks, a lot of bubbles in the economy are going to be exposed. Mm. Uh, so I think what we're going to see in 2024 is the strange, magical, novel economy that we're in, created by stimulus, unprecedented in history, uh, is going to start to be exposed mm. um, and perhaps some bubbles will pop and some of the strangeness that I think hasn't arrived yet will arrive in 2024. Okay. Well, another one. We'll move on to immigration. Immigration will become one of the biggest issues in 2024, but perhaps in a different way than people have understood it in the past. Okay. How we've tended to sort of thought about immigration, particularly in, you know, I think of countries like ours, um, which is very much an immigrant nation, um, you know, and countries like Canada, New Zealand, um, US, uh, you know, probably immigration is, is much more normal for us. I was at my mm -hmm. kids' um, primary school graduation last night and just an incredible breadth of multiculturalism we mm. have in Australia uh, and, you know, real incredible diversity of, of different countries people have come from. So often how immigration has been spoken about is really uh, are you pro-immigration or anti-immigration and that's really are you racist or not racist or, you know, do you, do you see a multiplicity of different cultures in your culture as a positive thing or not? Yeah. But what we're going to see is increasingly immigration become an economic issue uh, in the West. So let me explain this. So I just talked about the economy. And one of the difficulties that we've had is we've, we've approached something similar to the 1970s where we've sort of hit, we've got inflation and then we've got sort of low, low growth in mm -hmm. the economy, low productivity. And so one of the ways that we've learned to stimulate the economy, and Australia has been an immigrant nation, but we've also become addicted to immigration as a way of solving our lack of growth. Yeah, right. So the more migrants you bring in, you know, the more jobs they can do, and it stimulates the economy. And as cities like Melbourne and Sydney are just growing. And you know, that can be true of Vancouver. That can be true. You know, you look at a city like London and, and migrants that come in. Um, so part of the response of um, uh to the coronavirus was to flood the economy with stimulus, mm. capital, stimulus of capital. But one of the solutions that we're now seeing is to deal with low growth in our society by flooding it with human capital. Uh, so bringing people into the system, which will take jobs, someone gets a good job, then they've got to have services that stimulates the economy. Yeah. Uh, but what's so you know Australia was talking about like we need six hundred fifty thousand migrants. Canada I think was talking about getting a million migrants. Yeah. New Zealand and all this. However, something fascinating has happened in the last couple of weeks. So Rishi Sunak, who Prime Minister of England, you know was to, Britain was talking about um, you know similar thing. We're going to bring all these migrants in, but then he's begun to walk it back quite mm. dramatically. Uh, within less than a week, our Australian Prime Minister on a Sunday announced he's going to walk it back. Uh, New Zealand, I think, is following suit. Uh, Canada hasn't done it, but what's happening in Canada is fascinating is that a lot of the migrants who they're getting are actually now, they're struggling with the problem of reverse migration mm. because migrants are coming to a place, you know, like Toronto and they can't afford a house, they can't afford inflation yes. and they're moving to other countries. Mm. Um, so what we're seeing is this really interesting dynamic where we need immigration but it's happening at a time of housing crises, cost of living crises. Yep. 
So, you know, part of me is like, I'm, I, I love Australia's cultural diversity. I've grown up around it. Like, I have no problem with it. But then when you hear that the government's like going to bring 650,000 people and there's people in your church who can't find houses, <laughs> mm-hmm. in your head you go, hang on, how's this going to square? How's this going to work? Um, so I think that immigration has been used as a kind of economic stimulation, uh, stimulus in, in globalization, yep. uh, more than your classic sort of Statue of Liberty, bring your poor, tired and, and you know, needy or whatever to us. So you're going to see this increasing backlash against immigration now in places like Europe, which as the demographic decline really begins to hit. So for example, J- Japanese prime minister uh, talked about the fact that Japan is going to become non-functional because they don't have enough people to do all the jobs that need to be done. Yes. They're losing knowledge. Who runs the power plant? Who you know teaches law at this school? They mm. don't have the people to do that. They're going to have to have migration. So I think less so in countries like New Zealand and Australia, uh, which are used to large levels in, say, Canada or the US, are used to larger levels of migration. What you're going to see is um, uh, in Europe, which hasn't had that you know, history, mm. uh, an increasing backlash against migration, which is probably more about culture um, yeah. and, you know, uh, particularly you know, that sort of civilizational clashing stuff. So, what this means is immigration is going to become an issue. So, our, our government has cut immigration, UK is cutting immigration. I think New Zealand's doing it or talking about it. Okay, so you realise that it's going to cause social problems if you have massive immigration. However, an economic problem, you, you still don't solve the economic problem that we're heading for a massive demographic decline. Mm-hmm. So yeah. all this is doing is kicking the can down the road because what's going to happen in 10 years, people are going to go, well, there's no one who can do all these jobs. Like, like I can't find a mechanic. Yes. Um, so, yeah, so this raises the, uh, this is the sort of sub point of this one is the world in the age of anger is going to hit demographic decline where it goes from a theory that people are warning about in the future to a reality that begins to happen. Mm-hmm. 2020, the first baby boomers began to retire. More and more will do that each year. And it's going to be really struggle. It's going to be a real struggle to replace that large group of workers, yes. plus also not just what they bring, but also their knowledge as well. Yeah. We're forgetting to do certain things in the West, which is really interesting. So that's going to cause increasing anger in, mm-hmm. in the future. Well, your final mega trend is endopolarization. Yeah, this is a big word for everyone. Uh, I heard this term and, and really it captures something we've spoken about and predicted on this podcast before. Mm. Um, but what we've talked a lot, the age of anxiety was about polarization, mm-hmm. the world seemingly splitting into conservative and progressive or, you know, woke and anti-woke. Um, but, you know, this was inevitably going to fracture. This, this tends to what happens with political movements throughout history. Yes. Uh, the battles inside political parties are much more fierce than the battles against the other political party. So what endopolarization means is endo is in, exo is out. So this is polarization within blocks. And Israel has really been the catalytic event. Now, we sort of just talked about this a little bit. But what you've seen is Israel has, particularly on the left, it's happened on the right, even the the sort of Trumpian MAGA right has split. Mm. You know, there's some people who are pro-Israel, other people against um, pro-Palestine. But particularly on the left, what this is, 
really undone is I think a kind of alliance that began in the age of anxiety when you had, you know, Brexit happened and Donald Trump, you had this sort of knitting together of an alliance between some people who are centre-right. So, you know, these would be Republicans who are anti-Trumpers or people in the British Conservative Party who are anti-Boris Johnson. So you're sort of centrists of the left and right made common cause with people further on the left. Mm -hmm. And it was this sort of alliance against um, uh, Donald Trump. Then with the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, you saw that even bolstered further. So you had people who's like, we're against this. Well, the authoritarian thing, it's not just happening in, in polling booths now, it's actually happening and there's a war and Putin as this authoritarian is now invading countries. But I think what's happened with Israel is because, um, you know, Israel-Palestine uh, is such a third rail issue that that so animates and so divisive. Remember my brother said to me years ago, he said, if you, if you look at any YouTube, you, you can be looking at a YouTube arguments over, I don't know, a Rick Astley song, and eventually every argument on YouTube turns into an argument over Israel-Palestine. And, and you know, so that sort of <laughs> substrata deep argument that has been there always culturally has come to the fore and it's splitting the left. Mm. So you're seeing people very much in that more centre establishment left, like centre establishment Democrats who still are very pro-Israel. Mm-hmm. They're liberal. They're progressive. They see Israel as a liberal progressive state in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um breaking with the more sort of, let's call it the liberation sort of left, which sees now Palestine is one of the sort of uh, original um, causes for, for you know, and, and this goes way back. You know, if, if you look, you know, you can go back to earlier when, you know, the, the I don't know if I talked about this, but, you know, the PLO was originally set up in Algeria uh, as they had their headquarters and um, as France was going through its independence battle uh, over Algeria, you know, a number of the sort of French left, you know, would go to Algeria and there was sort of this early sort of coming together of the sort of further left of the critical critical uh, theory left with the sort of cause of, of Palestinian liberation and that's all been come back to the surface now. So what you've seen since we did our last Israel one is very much, let's call it the woke left, uh, and you even see this here in Australia, um, has become pro-Israel and the center left, anti-authoritarian center left is defining itself against over the Palestine issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, so in a sense, things are breaking up. And, you know, I think what we're going to see is we're going to see more of this. Uh, it, it's 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 going to be more sort of interesting battles within fraction instead of it's going to be left versus right. It's going to be sort of everyone against everyone yeah. and multiple factions, which you saw thing happen like things like the Cultural Revolution began in China very much against sort of you know Mao used the young people as a tool against some of the sort of establishment figures within the Communist Party, mm. but then very quickly the, the sort of protest began in these different factions of Red Guards fighting against each other. So in some ways, here's, here's, here's the takeaway. This is the year that woke broke. <laughs> um, and you saw it over Israel. You saw really it fascinatingly over American universities where in many ways that sort of center American left uh, was happy with the directions that universities were heading in because they saw it as a continuation of liberalism or progressivism. But then all of a sudden when they saw the rise of anti-Semitism, particularly people, you know, who, who, who are Jewish and, and liberal in America who, you know, provide uh, donations to universities, all of a sudden you saw them going, oh, my goodness, what? Have we created a monster here? 
So, you know, you're seeing people pulling out funding from American universities. And I think what you've seen in the last little bit is the center left going, what have we created here? And so you're also seeing this in the US as well over sort of law and order issues mm -hmm. as well. Um, so you've now got this split between the reformist progressives who want to reform institutions and the revolutionary left who want to destroy revolutions and start again. And that's become clear. So what does this mean? And this is where there's sort of a slight, you know, potential interesting turn. One of the things to the most great mistakes you can make in history is just to think that the future will be an intensification of the trends already occurring now. Yeah. And history doesn't work like that. Mm. You know, I just read um, Robert Dalek's biography of uh, uh, FDR, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the US president who was around in the 30s. And it was just fascinating reading this in the, in the last few weeks is watching everything going on and, and very much, you know, Roosevelt came in and, you know, in the tale of an economic shock of the Great Depression, Europe and large parts of the world were being torn apart by a further left, you know, which was sort of Bolshevik, you know, or, or far left and then an emerging fascist right. There were street battles everywhere and very much, you know, FDR sort of, um, and look, there's different readings of FDR. This is my reading of him as an Australian, um, sort of decided to take this centrist position and go, we've actually almost got to not just take centrism as just something which is we've almost got to aggressively assert it in the world. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder whether we're actually going to see some of that in this period. It's yeah. interesting the candidate Nikki Haley, who's on the Republican right, is sort of more like a George Bush Republican is that there's a lot of Democrats in the center left and Wall Street money going behind. I think your sort of American establishment, your you know establishment in large parts of the world, your EU establishment, a lot of these people uh, are looking, I think, at this situation and seeing they've seen the sort of threat on the right. They're seeing the threat on the left now, post to post uh, Israel Gaza. And I reckon you're going to see a point where they're like, okay, we're going to do something here. Mm. Europe has not gotten onto a raw economy when it needed to in terms of what's happening in Ukraine. I think you're going to see a lot of waking up. <laughs> and so the age of anxiety is like, man, something may be changing. We're a bit nervous. Let's write a paper about it. What you're now going to see is policy written. Um, so, you know, we could see like one potentially is you could see a sort of resurgence of the center because they're still very much all power. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and a bit more of an alliance of the sort of centre-right and the centre-left. That's one potentiality. You know, one crazy thing that no one can predict is Nikki Haley becomes president in 2024. Mm. Um, uh, I'm not saying that's not a prediction, but these are the <laughs> kinds of possibilities that that happen. So everything I'm saying here is not necessarily going to happen in the way that we, th we, th we think. That in a sense, I think that the mentality that we had before the age of anxiety, that everything's just going to slowly move in one direction. Mm. I think those who believe that no longer even believe that now. Yes. And, you know, if Putin takes Ukraine, if if the crazy electoral results keep happening, I think you're going to start to see the weaving together of a new political vision, which is very much what FDR did. He, he weaved together a new political vision um, from the centre and there'll be people who argue whether that was radical or not. But uh, I think you're going to start to see new stuff in the age of anger in response because I don't think people are going to let it keep going in this direction. Yeah. I think uh – Hearing you sort of say that, it reminds me of a, a secular application for crisis proceeds renewal. Yes, you know, yes. Yeah. When there's chaos and disorder, people <coughs> find a way to 
create a new path. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so that I mean, this is this is grey zone dynamics. You know. Yeah. I think the age of anxiety was the first part of grey zone. Yeah. We're perhaps you know sort of getting to the sort of synthesis part of the second part of grey zone now, where people start to go, this is what's going on, and then I think the new what what comes next will start to emerge out of that. Yeah. yeah. Well. <laughs> we will see what happens next year. We're going to take a quick break now and we'll be back to explore some more spiritual dynamics of what's ahead. Well, we're back. Um, <laughs> thank you for the, uh, yeah, huge list of, of what might you, – you might be listening and feeling potentially a little bit overwhelmed. Um, yeah. There is a lot happening in the world and a lot of it isn't great. But I think one of the things about this podcast, if you've travelled with us for a while, you'll know that it's not, it's not about, um, you know, creating this doom and gloom. Um, this mm. is the – defeatist view of where our world is heading but it's to understand what's happening and know how to prayerfully engage with it know how to um look at it through the lens of christians through mm. the lens of faith and through mm. um the hope that we have because we follow a god who is sovereign over it all uh so now we're going to, um, yeah, take more of a spiritual mm. uh, approach mm. to what's ahead for 2024. Mm. Um, yeah. What have you got for us, Mark? Yeah. Look, I, I think that's a really helpful way to frame it. I, th I think that, you know, I realise that I can be slightly disconcerting to people because, you know, often we'll offer a rather sober assessment of the world and it's very crisis, various crises. But then we really at the same time I'm sort of quite radically optimistic about what God's doing mm -hmm. and mm – -hmm. To be honest, I think when everything looked great, I was probably more pessimistic about what was happening with the church, but uh, it's sort of this inversion. Um, if you think about the age of anxiety moving to the age of anger, it's a complete mood shift. Mm. In the age of anxiety, the mistake that we can make is that ministry becomes mood management where we're managing the feelings of people. Um the sense was before then it was like, you know, everything's fantastic and the sort of yes, we can period and that was political but it was also personal in the sense of, you know, all your dreams can come true and you're going to have this fantastic life. And so the age of anxiety was, you know, sort of people thinking, oh, my goodness, this is turning out different than I thought. Mm. And so ministry then is, you know, often surrounded or, or you know, work or surrounded by people are feeling very anxious, you know. And, yeah, the danger is that that can – that mood management, that feelings management can be external. So if you minister and there are many pastors who listen to this or leaders, you mm. know, perhaps that's what you felt part of your time has been. Yes. Uh, and uh, many of you who work in different fields have found that in your workplaces, your cultures, your neighbourhoods. Um, uh, it also can be personal. I think a lot of people started their careers, uh, 
they live their lives and family relationships have changed since even began listening to this podcast. Friendships have changed. Church dynamics have changed. Uh, and a lot of that is really, yeah, managing then the your own mood, mm. <laughs> your own anxiety in the midst of this. But I think the, the age of anger is what I've called it and I think that's just trying to capture the, the public mood. But I think that there's, there's more underneath that. I think there will be this sense of anger because – Anger, I think, is a stage that comes after anxiety because people realize, like, hang, hang on, things are, are radically changing. But I actually see for the church, less an age of anger. Mm. I, see, I see for us, for believers, whether you're a pastor, whether you're an accountant, whether you work as a diplomat or, you know, you, 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 you work uh, in a store, that there's this incredible opportunity at this moment to, to rebuild. And I think this is coming down. Like, why do we call this rebuilders? Uh, I think we call this rebuilders because there was a sense that different things were being pulled down mm. and then there is this invitation to rebuild. Um, you know, there's all these terms around deconstructionism and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, very much that's sort of a loaded term that comes to us from sort of French philosophy and, and um, or, you know, critical theory. And, you know, I like what John Gray talks about the fact that, you know, it's almost more how people talk about that is almost it's written a book called The New Leviathans. Um, I was reading it yesterday, I almost finished it. And, you know, he, he talked about it's almost sort of a rudimentary sort of popularization of the, the idea of deconstructions and people like Derrida didn't believe in deconstructing everything. And so I think, you know, sort of everything is having this legitimacy crisis. Everything's, you know, being deconstructed. But I think the real radical thing in this moment is to build. Mm-hmm. And there is this sense in the age of anxiety to retreat from the world, to almost become the sort of Buddhist sage who mm-hmm. wanders off from his family and his, his, his connections because the world is considered a, a sort of um, illusion and goes off into the bush and meditates on the top of a mountain or something. Uh, but that, that is not a temptation that, that we can step into, that I think that we are called to build in the messiness and um, and to look for the opportunity. And I think this is an opportunity-rich environment. We've spoken multiple times about the fact that I think the 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 script that people have been told, one of the, one of the things that people are getting angry because they realize that they've been ripped off, that there is a what I've called a platform pain point. We've been told to live as a platform mentality that we're more important than anything in the world and we're not. We've been ripped off. Mm. And, you know, I think there's frustration that the story that we've been told, the lifestyle that we thought we could have, the opportunities that we thought would be ours are not there. Well, this is what life's always been like, you know, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and our societies and cultures fall short of the glory of God and sin. So in the midst of that, I think there's going to be a lot of people who are awakening to the reality that, hang on, we've been, we've been told a lie and that there will be some who then are dragged into all kinds of things. I think, I think we're going to see more cults. I think we're going to see internet religions. I think we're going to see all kinds of crazy stuff happen. But there will be people who darken the door of your church and ask questions and you know tap on your shoulder at a party and want to know what's going on. And, and people have perhaps even lived just a culturally Christian life going, surely there must be more than this. Mm. So there's tremendous opportunity in this moment. But I just, I just want to speak to those listening in a, in a particular way. On, on Sunday night um, after our, our 6 p.m. service, you know, I was just chatting to just a member of our congregation and he just sharing something with me and you know, he, he just felt the Lord had sort of placed on his heart thresholds and, and you know, there's moments of thresholds and in moments of thresholds when God is inviting us through the door into something new, um, that's also the time of temptation. It's also the time of contesting. It's also the time of conflict. And, and what if we actually looked at the age of anxiety as this 2015 to 2022 
if we look back of it, of all the, the polarization, if we look at what happened with COVID and we look at, you know, the sort of tearing apart of some of the sort of social bounds that we went through, the fact that, you know, churches fell apart, friendships broke up, you know, there was difficulty. Many, many people we know, because we've gotten your emails, have just had a really, really <coughs> tough few years. Mm. Um, but what if actually these were the the conflicts, the temptations, the difficulties that occur in the doorway to the threshold of what God has next? Mm-hmm. I, I just want to reframe that. I think, you know, when I look back of, you know, I said 2023 is like probably one of the most difficult years I've lived through. Um, it's not been a cakewalk for us at Red, mm. particularly since 2020. Uh, we've been through many of the things. You know, the background, we're not, we're not, sitting in some compound here, putting out a podcast and then, I don't know, going smoking cigars for the rest of the week. Like, you know, we go from here and we go into meetings and we go into realities and we go into difficulties in, in, in our work and personal lives and you know, all this stuff. Uh, and I think one of the things that I've realized is in the midst of pain, God prepares. You know, Lewis, C.S. Lewis talked about that, you know, God speaks the most loudest in the midst of our suffering. And so, you know, one th- way I'm realizing coming out of 2023 and in some ways I'm I'm happy to, you know, be finished with this year because it's been really, really tough. But what I also see in the midst of that was incredible preparation. Mm. You know, I think some of the moves that we saw, like we talked about the first spring rains of, of God's renewal. You know, we began 2023 with recounting just some of the ways the Holy Spirit had come close in, in services. We did the renewal sessions. We've had, you know, we had a service a couple of weeks ago where we just had different people sharing their stories of transformation and renewal. And I've seen in the last three years, people profoundly transformed and renewed in ways I'd not seen earlier. It happened occasionally, but it's happening to more people. Mm. You know, I've shared before that I think God is is seeding the world with pillars and I think many are listening to this. So what if actually there's been a foundational preparation? Like what actually if God has deposited things in you? What if you've actually gained resilience? What if actually you've been strengthened by the Lord? Mm. What if actually God has, yeah, you, you have lost some relationships, but what if that's actually God's because God wanted to bring you relationships? When God is doing something, you know, I, I just have this sense that there's lots of people who, you know, feel super isolated and are sort of going almost going, you feel punched up and beat up after this season. But I just wonder if, Part of this is preparation for an elevation of your spiritual authority. Mm. You've learned stuff. You know, maybe this sort of Christmas period, January period, instead of just coming up with, I don't know, 10 new morning routines that you want to do for your New Year's resolution, what if you actually reflected on what have you learned? What has God deposited in you? And what if so much of this preparation is that a harvest time is coming? What if this preparation is that, yeah, it's going to be the age of anger and, you know, there'll be a Time magazine thing and, you know, I don't know someone will nick it or something and it'll be, you know, the age of anger. Yeah, but what if actually this is the age of harvest? Mm. Mm. What if this is actually the age where we see a bunch, and I just particularly want to talk to a lot of, we know we can see the demographics through our, our stats. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of you are younger leaders, not all of you, but a lot of you are younger leaders and perhaps you're not so young now. And, and maybe it's actually your time to step up and take the reins of what God wants to do. Mm, yeah. And and maybe the time of the extended young adult years, which now seem to push into the mid-40s, what if that's not over? What if it's actually the time for you to step up and step into the call that God has? Not mm. a time to mourn, but actually a time to celebrate what is to come. And that's going to be in the mud. That's going to be in the mess. Let me tell you now, every Christian biography that I've read uh, of a leader, none of them had this awesome, wonderful pieced together perfect Instagrammable life that actually it was always mess and conflict, but in the midst of them, God used incredible people. Mm. 
Um, so my sense for 2024 is, yeah, it's the age of anger. That's my cultural read. But my, my spiritual read is that it's the age of opportunity and it's the actual age of harvest. And, and, and I think there's just, I just have a sense, you know, I'm, I'm sort of preaching now. I get that and I'm speaking prophetically. But I just think that this is a moment where God's like, yep, you're sitting here, you're, you're on a walk, you're driving a car, you're sitting in your office listening to this with your earbuds. But this is where he's sort of saying step up. This is the time to step up and step into the new opportunity that I have for you. Mm. The world is fundamentally sick of hype and imagery and public relations and, you know, I don't know, focus groups. What the world is hungry and looking for is, you know, authentic believers who really believe this stuff and actually show the fortitude and strength and resilience uh, that many struggle to find because they believe the myths that the world has told them. But we believe in the resurrected Christ who rose from the, the grave on the third day and that resurrection power is yours. So my encouragement to our Rebuilders audience, the journey that we've gone through, I think it's our, our encouragement for us here as well is there is so much more that God has for us. And, and what if actually as the world's dreams are falling apart in 2024, what if it's actually time for God's dreams to actually be become true in your life. In the sense, I don't mean that in some stupid prosperity gospel way. I more mean like what if it's actually the time to dream again as the church and maybe our dreams that we had have actually been torn down by the presence of God because they were of the flesh. Mm -hmm. And what actually if now the dreams of God are going to start to come on the radar because they've been purified and refined in the fires that so many of us have gone through. So yeah, a lot of concerning trends in the world. But I think incredible opportunity. I hope can't be in some, I don't know, some revivification of centrism or something like this. Like our hope is in Jesus and our hope is that he works through people like you and me, wherever you are, big cities, small towns, whether you're working in the marketplace, working in government, just trying to be a person in your neighborhood of peace and love. Mm -hmm. uh, my encouragement is to step through the doorway. God has been preparing you. He, he, he wants to use you and step into all that he has for you in 2024 because it's going to be rich with opportunities to minister and advance his kingdom in partnership with him. Amen. Amen. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Um, yeah, what a way to, to end uh, our Rebuilders episodes for the year. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, Daniel. Um, yeah, we just want to say a very happy Christmas to all of you who are listening. Um, yeah, pray that it's filled with joy and peace and love. Mm. Um, if you do want some background conversation for this episode, we're going to be recording subscriber chats in just a moment. And if you want to receive that, you can head to our website, rebuilders.co and subscribe to our mailing list and you'll get it a few days after the episode is released. Um, yeah, but until next year. Mm. Merry Christmas. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Thanks, everyone.